We are continuing our series uh, called Through Them and For Them, where this Advent season, we're not, we're not spending all of our time kind of with the like wise men and shepherds and stars and the kind of like typical stories we think of when we think of this time of year. We're looking at Jesus's genealogy. And genealogies were important not just to islanders, but to first century Jews who were reading the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and sorting through, is this the guy that people say he is? It was important for them to know where he came from, whether he was kind of from the right descendants and those kind of things. We talked last week about how it was important for them to identify that Jesus was a descendant of King David. Because God made a promise to David that one of your descendants will always be on the throne. That the anointed one, the Messiah, would come from the lineage of King David. And so the genealogy of Jesus starts off saying that Jesus was a son of David. And it shows that lineage. It also says that Jesus was a son of Abraham, a direct descendant of Abraham. And and that Abraham is actually kind of where Matthew, who writes his gospel, starts his genealogy as a way of saying that the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and that through him and his descendants all of the nations would be blessed. This promise, Matthew's implying from his genealogy, is fulfilled in Jesus. That the descendant of Abraham who would bless the nations is being realized in Jesus. Now, over this Advent season, this, this time where the church has traditionally set aside as a time of anticipation, of, of anticipating Christmas, of anticipating Christ being born, and, and for us also being in this place of anticipating his return, we are going to kind of walk through some of the generations and anticipate Jesus along with them. We're looking at four people or, or moments within the genealogy of Jesus together. Last week, we talked about Tamar, which was a really fun story to work through of this woman who acts like a prostitute in order for her father-in-law to get her pregnant to be able to carry on the family line. You thought your family had issues. Look at Jesus's. But it was a reminder to us that God can even take the most shameful parts of our stories and redeem them for his grand purpose. And we may not even be aware of how moments in our lives are actually going to be used by God for his purpose. This morning, we're going to continue in the genealogy. If you you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1 or just follow along on the screen, we're going to continue reading. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's who we talked about last week. It goes on to say, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, great name. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We're going to look at Rahab this morning. This is another moment, like Tamar, if you remember from last week, 
where for some reason the mother is included. Right? This was a patriarchal culture. This was a, a, a time where the lineage, most importantly, is traced through the male descendants. So it wasn't necessary for the mother to be included or written down, but for whatever reason, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decides Rahab needs to be included here. I'm going to make a point to say that the mother is important in this story. Why is Rahab included? What can we learn as we look at Jesus' story or family? Well, Rahab, if you, um, if you remember, kind of like Tamar, she's one of those people who can get lost in some of the obscurity of the Old Testament. But Rahab was from the city of Jericho. And if you remember the the story in the Old Testament where the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, right? For 400 years, there's the whole deal with Moses and the burning bush and the let my people go and plagues. And then finally, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. Moses parts the water of the Red Sea. They cross over. The Egyptians drown. They spend time in the wilderness. You remember this story? And God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. They call it the promised land, right? And so coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, they were going to go to this promised land. The problem is, is when the people get to kind of the border of the promised land, they send out spies, they go and they look at the land, and they're like, there's no way that we can take this land over. There's no way that we can conquer it because the people that live there are stronger than us. They're bigger than us. There's amazing crops and farmland. It's a fertile place. It would be awesome to live there, but I don't think we can take it. And so God punishes the Israelites by making them wander in the desert for 40 years until a generation dies off before they can inherit the promised land, before they can come back to where God was leading them. What happens is Moses and all that generation with him, they die, and a man named Joshua takes over. He's kind of Moses' protege and leads Israel after Moses' death. And so finally, they cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and the first city that they're faced with is Jericho. Jericho is this this city, it's kind of strategically located, it's right in the Jordan Valley before you get into the mountains of uh, of Canaan, and it was a perfect strategic location, water-wise. Jericho itself means the city of palms, meaning in kind of the deserty area that it was, it was an oasis. It's where the palm trees grow in the midst of its location. But it was a fortified city. And all of a sudden, this group of Israelites, formerly slaves, the next generation down, who aren't a trained military, who are, you know, uh, very much going to need to be reliant on God to take the land that he promised them, are faced with this conundrum of how do we take over this city that has walls. And so Joshua sends out two spies into Jericho to go in, to sneak in, to scout it out. And these two spies, while they're in Jericho, sneaking around, they stay at the home of a prostitute named Rahab. Now I realize this is two weeks in a row where we're talking about prostitution, which is interesting that this is 
how Jesus' genealogy is coming about. Now, we don't know whether there's any kind of funny business or implications with Rahab being a prostitute there, but what we do know is that she helps to hide them. She helps to hide them from the king of Jericho who's sending out soldiers to try to root out the Israelite spies who are looking around. We're going to pick up from there by reading Joshua chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 21. I'm just going to read it from here uh, because the Bible says it better than I would. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt that you, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God of heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear by me, swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives are your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell us, if, if you don't tell what we are doing, you, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not, uh, will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on your hands. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if hands are laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Someone over my words a little bit this morning, but what I find interesting about this story in Joshua, the story of Rahab, like we saw with Tamar, is that there is this interesting agreement and this pursuit of a woman, a woman who has a reputation that would be looked down upon otherwise by people. We can probably draw a lot of parallels between Tamar and Rahab, but that's not going to be our emphasis this morning. This morning we're going to emphasize something a bit different 
that we read in verse 11 of this passage. When Rahab said, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God of heaven above and of the earth below. The people of, Israel, of Jericho sorry, knew that the Israelites were coming. Like when, when the sea gets parted and the Egyptian army gets drowned, or when this like small militia of untrained soldiers who are like just learning how to swing a sword are able to defeat the armies of the Amalekites, you hear about that. And all of a sudden, two and two gets put together of they're coming to Canaan and we're kind of the first city in. They're coming for us. And if for whatever reason they're able to defeat the Egyptians and cross the sea and they're able to defeat the Amalekites because of this God that is with them and they're coming on our doorsteps, we're in trouble. News spread to the people of Jericho. There was something about the God of Israel that struck fear and awe into the lives of of the people of Jericho. Yay! They're coming for us! I think it's the same kind of fear like you would feel if you're out on the boat on a boat on the waters in the midst of a storm. This realization of all of this is bigger than me and I'm kind of small and helpless in light of it. It's kind of like being on the edge of the Grand Canyon where there's this majestic awe, but I know if I like, slip the wrong way, I'm done for. This fear of the Lord that takes hold where people's hearts are melting with fear, as Rahab says. But what's significant about this story is Rahab, unlike the rest of the people of Jericho, her response to hearing about the Lord is not to resist, but to seek to join in on what God is doing. To not resist, but to join in and trusting that in doing that, she's going to be saved from the impending destruction of Jericho. I think we can kind of immediately turn that question in upon ourselves. When we hear about God and what he's done and what he's doing, when we hear about Christ, how is it that we respond? Do we respond like, man, like we've grown up in church or we've been around Christians enough that like, I know the stories, like I went to Sunday school or something, or at Christmas time, like I know there's like a manger and a little drummer boy or something, and it's... Uh, Man, you guys didn't even chuckle at that. There's not actually a little drummer boy in the Bible. My jokes are just like, every week, just bombing. I bet second service, it'll go great. It's not going to make it in the second service. Scratch that out. But maybe you've grown up in church and even like Christmas time, the stories of Jesus and the manger and the wise men, all this stuff is like, yeah, I've heard it. And it's bland. And, and you've never like given it a second thought or put any weight into what it might mean for you. 
You've just heard it and passed it off. Maybe for you, you've, you've started getting into the Bible and you're reading things about how God has acted in history and there's something about Jesus that you find compelling, but kind of like Rahab, you realize that, that there, there are some real implications for me with this. That if I side with this God that I'm reading about, that, that it's going to make me look strange in the eyes of my neighbors or my friends or my family. And there might actually be like social obstacles for you that way. Or maybe you're in a place where, like Rahab, God is obviously doing some work in your heart and you're hearing about God and you want to be in on it. There is this like awe and fear of who He is and you're like, I want to be on His side. Maybe you're just trying to make sense of this story and even the thought of God sending people to ransack a city is like, I, I can't get my mind around the morality of that and it's all confusing. As we work through the story of Rahab, there's, there's two beautiful things that I, I want us to be able to draw out from her story. And, and part of it has to do with the very nature of what the Bible is. There's a, there's a, on some level, the Bible is almost like uh, a Wikipedia page. Now, not in the sense of like anyone can just go in and write whatever they want on Wikipedia, Cut that part out of the analogy of how the Bible is like a Wikipedia page. But the Bible is kind of like a Wikipedia page in the way that it's very hyperlinked. You ever been on Wikipedia and then like all of a sudden these words are in blue and you click them and they take you to another page that it's like referencing? The Bible is hyperlinked in all of these ways where we read the story of Rahab and, and, and what the spies and her were talking about in Jericho, and all of a sudden it's like drawing on this thing that God did, and this thing that God did, and this thing that God is doing. And so there's some hyperlinks here that I think we need to explore to really flesh out this story. First of all, the story of, of Rahab and these spies parallels a moment from the life of Abraham back in Genesis. You may remember that Abraham had... Uh, a, a nephew named Lot. And Lot settled in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and God was planning on judging these cities, right? And he told Abraham, like, I'm, I'm going to destroy these cities because of the, just the rampant evil of what is going on there. And Abraham says, God, would you destroy it if there's like 50 righteous people there? And God said, no, I, I wouldn't destroy it. And then Abraham's kind of getting nervous. He's like, what if there's like 20 righteous people there? Would you destroy it? God said, no, I wouldn't destroy it because of them. And, and he, he's kind of like doing this like haggling with God and gets him down to like, if there was like 10 righteous people in the city, would you destroy the city? And God says, no. And there's this beautiful phrase in there of, of would not the, the, the perfect judge judge rightly? Like, God is going to perfectly judge the city. And in his decision to ultimately destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah was the perfect judge judging rightly. But what we also see is God sends in these two messengers into the, the city of, of Sodom. 
and these two messengers that are actually angels, they remind us of kind of these spies that we see in the Jericho story where they go in, they find Lot's family, and they bring them out of the city before it's destroyed. God said he would not destroy the righteous among the unrighteous when it came to Sodom. And there's parallels here of showing us that God's promise to not, or the promise that is worked out that, that Rahab would not be destroyed when Jericho is besieged reminds us of that promise that God made to Abraham. That I'll not destroy the righteous along with the unrighteous. So the question for us is, what is it that makes Rahab righteous? Like, she's a prostitute. She, you know, someone probably living in the quote-unquote red light district along the wall of the city that made her work easy because of the traffic that goes along there. Most of us in this room would probably, you know, size her up and compare and say, she's not a very righteous person. But the righteousness of Rahab that ultimately saves her from this destruction is her response of faith to hearing about God. It's in saying, I've heard about this God and I want to be on His side. And I trust that you're going to save me from what's coming. That's what makes her righteous. That's what makes her the one who is not destroyed along with the rest of Jericho. The second beautiful hyperlink that we see in this story is this idea of the, the, the scarlet cord or the, the scarlet rope or the different translations call it different things. And this is this kind of like beautiful symbol that we, we see of that Christians are like, oh, that is this kind of hinting towards Jesus and the blood of Christ. And yes, It's a hinting towards Christ, but in a different way than just drawing a direct parallel. This picture of this scarlet cord that is hung in Rahab's window as a way to set her home apart as not being destroyed when the destruction of Jericho comes is a direct hyperlink to what happened back in Egypt when the Passover happened. You may remember like the, the, the plagues that happened for the Israelites to be able to leave. The final plague was called the plague of the firstborn. Where God tells Moses, listen, I'm going to come through Egypt tonight. And the firstborn of every family is going to die. And God says, sacrifice a lamb. Roast it and eat it together as your family and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of your house. And when I see the blood on your doorposts, I will pass over that house and the death will not come into your home. That Passover and the eating of that lamb became this ritual and festival in the life of the people of Egypt, remembering that God saved them from the death that was coming. This story with Rahab is meant to point us back to that moment 
that Rahab and hanging this scarlet cord from her window is it's like the painting of the blood of the Passover lamb so that when destruction comes, her home will be spared. What's beautiful about this story, though, is that she's not an Israelite. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite living in Jericho. This isn't just a, a promise that, oh, if you're from the right like family lineage, if you're from the right racial group, and you do this, then you'll be saved. No, it's a, anyone who hears about the Lord and responds in faith, they are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb, and death will not affect them. Rahab wasn't just saved from the destruction of Jericho, but she was brought into the family. We read that she, a foreigner, became part of Jesus' ancestry. We read that she, a prostitute, marries into a family and becomes the great-grandmother of Cain. She marries a guy named Salmon. She was an enemy who gets to participate in the victory of God and his people. See, God doesn't just want to save us from destruction, but he wants us to be part of the family. It's not just a, I don't want bad things to happen to you ultimately for eternity. It is a, I want you to find your place and your community, and I want to do something great in and through you. That's what we learn from Rahab. God's heart isn't just one of, I don't want you to be destroyed, but one of love, and I want what is best for you. Rahab and her story is kind of brought into this Passover theme that we see in the Old Testament. And she joins the, the people of Israel, and no doubt, as they are gathered and encamped, as they're learning to take over the promised land, as they finally settle there, and they begin kind of this festival of Passover and, and celebrating this meal, where they would roast the lamb whose blood-covered them and protected them from destruction and whose flesh would sustain them for the journey, they would remember what happened. And she, now being brought into the family, no doubt participated in this meal and feels the, the way that her story looks an awful lot like the Passover story. And 1,500 years later, Jesus would celebrate the same feast and ritual with his disciples. And he would sit in the upper room with them and they would, they would share in the feast of Passover, remembering how God passed over the Israelites in Egypt. How the blood of the lamb covered them and how, their flesh, how the flesh of the lamb sustained them for the journey in the wilderness. And he took that meal and he changed its meaning to being about the lamb in Egypt to being about the lamb of God who came for their sins. He took the bread that they ate in the meal and he broke it and he said, now this is my body, which is for you. And he took the wine and he said, this is my blood, 
poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. This meal isn't about a lamb and the exodus anymore. It's about a greater exodus and the true lamb of God. And so this morning we get to participate in that. We get to participate as those who, I don't know, you're kind of like, 23andMe or Ancestry.ca lineage of whether you have Jewish roots. But I'm a Gentile who gets to be brought into the family. We get to participate in this because the blood of the Lamb isn't just for those in Egypt who painted on their doorposts, but for all of us who hear about what God is doing and we respond and say, I want to be a part of that. And I trust that that is going to save me from destruction and that is going to bring me into the family. So this morning I want to turn your attention to the table in front of you. I invite you to take the the piece of bread that you have. I invite you to to take it and to break it and to pass a piece to everyone who's sitting there with you. And as we eat this bread this morning, that we would eat it reminding ourselves that the perfect Passover lamb gave his life for us to be saved. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And just as Jesus took the cup of wine after the meal and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, he said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you again in my Father's kingdom. Man, if if that is not the theme of Advent, I don't know what is. This anticipation of one day we will dine with our Lord. We anticipate that. Let's drink His blood in remembrance of Him. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, I thank you for your blood that was spilled, your blood that covers us, that protects us from the consequences of our own sin. I thank you that you are the one who makes us righteous, not ourselves. Jesus, I thank you for your body that was broken, that was tormented on the cross where you endured pain and suffering. A pain and suffering that we're deserving of for our sin, yet you took it for us. God, would would we respond like Rahab in hearing of this fearsome and awe-striking reality and respond by wanting to be on your side? Knowing that It's in this response that we're saved. Saved from destruction, but also saved to be part of your family. I thank you that you are merciful in ways greater than we even realize. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.